This is an ABC podcast. About a year ago, I was working as a full-time copywriter. Uh, We were working mostly from home during the pandemic, but when we were asked to return to the office three days a week, there was very little flexibility. This is Lily Ray. I'm an Australian living in Sweden, working as a freelance photographer, translator and subtitler. And what Lily realised was that management just expected people to be back in the office, no matter what. Regardless of whether there was a good reason or not, and I found the inflexibility of it, particularly having young children uh, preschool age, just to be an unnecessarily strict requirement, particularly coming from management who sort of swanned in and out as they liked. So, like many others in the same situation, Lily quit. I just decided that I would go freelance instead so that I had the flexibility to stay home with my children when I needed to and just being able to work to my own schedule, knowing that I had the self-discipline to actually carry that through. Around the world, hybrid work is here to stay and Lily is far from alone in choosing flexibility over rigid office hours. Some companies, from tech firms to big banks, are calling for their teams to come back full-time or are mandating how many days to be in the office. It's early days, it's complicated, and it's not one-size-fits-all. But should leaders really be worried about office culture dying and teams suffering? No, to be really frank. So why do we still need to be in the office then? Human nature would be my simple answer. Our brains didn't change just because we went through a pandemic. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and in this episode of This Working Life, we're closing our laptops and heading into the office to find out why we still need it, but not every day. The data is very, very clear that when employees are given more autonomy over where they work, when they work, how they work, etc., that it drives high levels of engagement, high levels of productivity, high levels of performance. And they even, you know, rate things like the quality of collaboration, ironically, to be a little higher. That's Aaron McEwen. Vice President of Research and Advisory for Gartner's HR practice. Aaron, what's the magic number of in-office days for hybrid workers? There is no magic number. There's a number that people are settling on, which seems to be around the the two days per week. If we speak to employees, they probably want it to be a little less. If we speak to employers, they want it to be a little more. (laughs) Uh, So there really is no consensus on that. And there's certainly no data to suggest that there's a magic number. It's all about the work that people do and the way that they need to purposefully collaborate. Why do you think we are settling around that two to three days in the office number? I think it's a classic case of tensions, you know, so it's the tensions that are leading us to this. So each employee has this kind of unique requirement or set of preferences, and that's based on a combination of the work that they do. But it's also, you know, the domestic responsibilities they have, the commitments they have. So then what about that argument, though, that my office culture has completely disintegrated and I need you back at work so that we can connect again and collaborate? There's no data to support that. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is that the jobs that executives do are very different to the jobs that their employees do. 
So employees, whether they're at the front line or they're in administration or they might be in sales or uh, IT, et cetera, uh, their jobs are often sitting alone, speaking with clients, building spreadsheets, writing reports, uh, producing things. Executives, on the other hand, their jobs are relational. It's about building consensus. It's about negotiation and influencing. So a lot of their time is actually spent in meetings with other people. And I'm not surprised that from their perspective, it probably feels really hard to run a complex business from your home office. But for the average employee, they actually uh, tell us very clearly that they do their best work when they're at home or working remotely on their own because they've got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of things to produce. You know, everyone's kind of reality is seen from where they sit and their perspectives. So I think for many executives, it probably feels like their culture is disintegrating. But what the data actually shows us is that those employees have learned how to collaborate very effectively online. And in fact, being able to collaborate with the people that they may work with in other states or other offices and other countries, that's actually improved because of the investment that we've made in this collaborative technology. And Aaron says there's something else that impacts time in the office, and that's geography. So it's where the office is based that really determines these needs in, in many ways. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you're living in a city that is heavily concentrated, it has great public transport, you know, housing is small, people live with many people in a small apartment, for example. So think about a city like Hong Kong. There's a very you know, kind of high preference for people to work in the office. And then if you layer climate on top of that, if it's a really hot and humid environment, you know, employees don't want to be paying for air conditioning while they sit at home in a crowded space trying to do their work. The opposite, if you have cities like Melbourne and City where public transport's not so good, there's a heavy reliance on cars, for example, it's more spread out and people live in larger houses the preferences for working from home tend to be a bit higher. So even in Australia, we have this huge diversity. Go to Darwin, everyone's in the office. Brisbane, maybe it's three to four days a week in the office. Get to Sydney and Melbourne, it's more likely to be one or two days in the office. So what's underpinning these calls to come back to the office, do you think? What's driving this? Yeah, this is not going to be a popular opinion. But I think there is a very big chunk of privilege. So when we think about, you know, the, the daily lives of the average worker versus the daily lives of the average senior executive or senior leader, uh, there's a couple of things that stand out. If you're a senior leader, and, I, and these are generalizations, so I just want to be clear, there are obviously exceptions to this. But if you're a senior leader, you probably live closer to the office, just from a socioeconomic perspective, you're more likely to have a parking spot in that building. There's also an economic cost to that. And with rising interest rates and you know cost of living pressures and inflationary pressure, that cost to get to the office is actually significant. Not just fuel and public transport costs, but we're talking dry cleaning costs. We're talking about lunches that people need to buy. Now, here's the big one, though. If you're a senior leader, you probably also outsource a significant percentage of your domestic responsibilities. So I don't know too many CEOs that don't have 
daycare or nannies that don't have house cleaners, that don't have people that clean their pools and mow their lawns, et cetera, et cetera. So that's starkly different to the average days or lives of their employees who have to do all of that themselves, often in a dual income household that is still struggling financially. So when people were given the opportunity to work from home or work remotely, it was a godsend for many people and particularly for women, particularly for people with disabilities, particularly for Indigenous employees, particularly for people with caring responsibilities. Maybe for the first time in their career, they were able to effectively or more effectively manage everything they had to do at work with everything that they had to do at home and still find time to invest in their health and well-being. Okay, so we've got a divide between employers and employees in who wants what. And there's one thing that employees want that employers should really know about. We called it smart autonomy. That's Jim Harter. Chief uh, workplace scientist at Gallup. He's just released a book called Culture Shock, which is full of data insights from Gallup studies about work and the ripple effects from the pandemic. And one thing that Jim discovered was that employees crave autonomy, but they also want clarity, a combination he coined smart autonomy. Autonomy is important for organisations to understand and to recognise it's a part of human nature. It's built into to who we are as human beings. It needs to be part of work. We're going to make work most functional. Most areas related to employee engagement have some element of autonomy within them. But complete autonomy isn't grounded in anything predictable. And uh, we need, it's, it's, it's important for leadership and managers to be thinking about how they have the right kind of conversations so that people aren't just thinking about me, myself, and I, but they're also thinking about uh, how they collaborate with their coworkers the value they bring to customers, and also their their own work and what parts of their work can be done independently and what parts they need to bring together with other people. And there was something else that Jim discovered which was way more important than days in the office. Having the right kind of meaningful conversations on a regular basis with some cadence on a weekly basis matters four times as much as where people are sitting. So remote work can be very effective even for people that are exclusively remote, if they have the right kind of managing, but it puts a lot of pressure on managers to do their jobs right. And we've, we really need to upskill managers with the right kind of tools so that they can manage effectively from a distance when they need to. Well, in fact, in your book, you say that the most important factor in building a winning team is the manager. And I would imagine this is even more critical in this hybrid environment. It is. The job of managing is is even more difficult than ever before. The job of leading is more nuanced than ever before but it's, it's more important than ever before also. We found that even when, if you think about employee engagement, what, what engages workers, we found in some studies we published in academic work that it matters even more during tough times. We're in some tough times right now. It's not like we can't get out of it. We, we, know, there are, we know the formula to get out of it and to be effective, but we've got to apply the right techniques to get out of it and, and to reach even the higher, highest levels of productivity ever. Because if you combine the human need of autonomy with some structure, and with great managing, we can have the highest levels of productivity ever. We've seen in the data for organizations that are practicing the right kinds of techniques and the right practices, they're, they're achieving really high levels of employee engagement. One of the things COVID has really challenged is our attitude towards presenteeism at work, but it still exists in parts. Some workers like Lily Ray wish for hybrid work days rather than hybrid work weeks. 
So, you know, maybe I have the morning at home, I have a slow breakfast, I read through and answer my emails while I'm doing that. I have a look at my day and okay, I've got a meeting at this time, it's online, I can do that from home. Or here, there's a project that I really need face-to-face input from my colleagues on, you know, I'll go into the office around this time. But I think that just that display of trust from an employer that you know what you need to do, you're an expert in your field, we trust you to get the work done and we're not going to hound you about unimportant details along the way just to show you that we're in control. Jim, I really want to pick up on this manager point. So your main recommendation for managers is to make sure they hold one meaningful conversation per week with an employee. Can you go deeper on this for me? Yeah, a meaningful conversation involves some really important components to it. And one is if it happens weekly with some cadence, it could last 15 to 30 minutes. It can be pretty short. If it's not with a cadence, it takes longer to catch up. But what goes into that conversation is the most important thing to get it right. Our question is even around meaningful, it's called feedback. And the word feedback has had a negative connotation historically. But when you, when you put meaningful in front of it, suddenly it becomes positive in the eyes of the employee. And 80% of people who strongly agree that they receive meaningful feedback are engaged. 80% when the, the norm in the, in the globe is, is 20, about 21% a little bit higher than that now you'll see in our latest global workplace report. Jim says that there are three elements that make feedback meaningful. The first is recognition. To recognize someone effectively though you've got to be in touch with what they're doing. You need to know how they like to be recognized. Only 10% of people will say they that someone asked them how they like to be recognized. Then there's collaboration. They talk with the uh, employee about how they're collaborating with their team. Only 13% of people say they decide where they're going to work based on a discussion with their team. Managers can help work that out and have the right kind of conversation so that collaboration happens the right way. Oftentimes managers, they're working with the colleagues of the employee. They know some things about how, how their work, their work style, and they can make sure that those collaboration and relationships happen most effectively, whether it's remote or in person. And of course, goals and priorities. And the key here, Jim says, is consistency. Just if you don't have some cadence in terms of how you discuss what people are doing and their goals and priorities, you can get off track and you have to correct them later. Many, many times organizations are changing very quickly and they, they need to have a discussion. Employees need to have a discussion with their manager about their goals and priorities so everybody's on the same page and so that it's aligned with what the organization is trying to get done. And the final element for meaningful feedback is for managers to talk about the strengths of the employee. That's been important to young workers um, even before, way before the pandemic when we studied millennials. They do want those, these ongoing conversations, ongoing feedback, but they also uh, want a manager who focuses on their strengths. It doesn't mean they want someone who just ignores weaknesses or doesn't have critical conversations, but they want it to be in a foundation of who they are naturally, their innate tendencies as an individual, what they lead with, and that they work from the individual to the job so that not everybody has exactly the same job, even though they're trying to get to the same outcomes. So effective managers lead with strengths and get to know each person, and they also leverage their own individual strengths. And that's uh, it's kind of one of the takeaways from all this work is that to build a strengths-based culture is one of the solutions for organizations going forward. And to do that effectively, you've got to have effective managers because most of culture gets developed through managers. And Jim, does this matter if this meaningful feedback is given in person or remotely? It can happen either way. Um, We know that from our data, and again, this is even, we've seen this before the pandemic even came and we had all these shifts in the workplace. In-person time matters 
but the total amount of time matters less than the fact that it actually happened. So having some cadence around in-person time, I think is important. It doesn't mean every meaningful conversation needs to be in person though. Some of them can be remote, but having some in-person time, if you can work that out, if it works out in terms of everybody's locations, then it's ideal to schedule some of that. And if you're a leader, Jim has some advice for you to help entice your team back to the office, should you wish. Well, the first thing is to establish what you want your culture to be. Bring some clarity to what you want your culture to look like, and then you can start putting the whys around that. I think employees nowadays don't just want to be told. They want to know what it will give them and what it'll give the company. So if you're going to bring people back into the office, you owe it to them to explain to them why that works, why that's beneficial, how it helps individual performance, collaboration, how it builds the kind of culture you're looking for, and how it it ultimately helps the organization reach its objectives. And then as important is giving everybody a great manager, upskilling your managers or reskilling them so that they do have the kind of conversations we've been talking about where they can uh, kind of close the distance between people and the organization and inspire people in terms of their work every day. That's really, really important because managers explain 70% of the variance in team engagement. They're the key to building the kind of culture you want. But first, you've got to articulate and explain why. Then the managers are going to have to live it out, managers at all levels in the organization. So what else is time in the office good for? Perhaps to help us avoid feeling lonely? This is probably my favorite topic. That's Aaron McEwen again. So, yes, I think this is important for organizations to look at. So the first thing is purposeful collaboration and connection. So the office is actually a great place to bring people together to purposefully connect. And that could be that they're working together on innovation or or collaborative tasks, or it could be that we simply bring them together so that they can connect. Uh, What we also found in the data is that the teams that worked together during the pandemic virtually they actually built stronger connections than they had prior to the pandemic. So what we call our strong connections, our close connections, they actually strengthened. It's the weaker connections where we probably do have some concerns. So that's those cross-functional relationships, the people you don't actually work with, but it might be really helpful to know and connect with. So those have weakened because we're not in the office, we're not in the, around those water coolers and we're not engaged in those types of activities. So there is definitely opportunity to improve those areas of collaboration. But at the moment, those aren't the relationships that are critical for organisational success. It really is those teams that work together and the people that you work with and through to get your job done. Oh, and if you're thinking Great. I'll get my team back in the office full time for meaningful feedback and purposeful collaboration. They'll love that. Hold your horses. Jim Harter again. Anytime you put the word required in a question about remote work, you get a lot of negative responses. Engagement's a lot lower. Jim says that if people were required to come into the office on certain days, no matter the number, they had lower engagement and well-being and higher burnout. Oh, and they were also more likely to be looking for another job. The place where we work doesn't solve everything. It doesn't solve even most of it. Um, Most of it gets solved through how we structure the work, bring clarity and have the right kind of conversations. Okay, Aaron, 
So if you've convinced me then that I can't make it mandatory for everyone to come back in the office, what if I try and entice people? So pets, bring your pets in. I've got some great food, a club-like environment. What are your thoughts on incentivizing or enticing people back into the office? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say, it's not a disaster to force people back into the office. I mean, firstly, nobody likes to be forced to do anything. So you're going to have to deal with that kind of change management issue. But employees are pretty pragmatic about this, you know, so if it's a reasonable request, and there's a point to coming into the office, then they're totally fine with that. It's when they're asked to come into the office and sit in a cubicle with inferior technology to do work that they could have done more effectively at home. So why go through the commute and all of the the, the, the other challenges to do something that you're as able to do, maybe even more effectively do elsewhere? There's a great analogy about this that I love, and that is the emergence of home theatres and the impact it had on cinema attendance. So when the technology got to the point that it was almost as good as going to the movies when the screens were big and we had the great surround sound systems, people started to then think about the downsides of going to the cinema. I have to drive there. I have to park. The popcorn is incredibly expensive for what it is. But most importantly, I have to listen to people talking through the movie, right? Uh, not that my wife doesn't talk through movies when we watch them, but that's a, that's a whole other point. But um, so what we've kind of seen with cinema attendance, and I know it's not exactly the same as work, mm. but people will still go to the cinema for a blockbuster. Mm. They'll go for a spectacle that suits that cinema environment, right? But they're not going to go to the cinema to watch a psychological thriller or a drama or maybe even a rom-com because that's something that is probably more uh, enjoyably consumed in that that home theatre environment. So I think that's one of the ways that, you know, leaders can think about this office thing is like people will come to the office if there's a point So if you're doing training, for example, or you're offering one-on-one coaching, if you're providing an opportunity for people to network and connect with important people in the organization that might help them with opportunities internally, if your clients are coming into the office, those are all things that people will make the effort, particularly if there's some type of celebration or ceremony attached to these things. So think of the office as a place where blockbusters take place. And so the equivalent then of a blockbuster is, as you're saying, a ceremony or some ritual that's worth making that commute for. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a ceremony or a ritual, but I think those are incredibly important things. And, and you know, to that point where leaders are concerned about culture, you know, culture is about ceremony and ritual and artifacts. Uh, So the office is full of those, or we can make it full of those things and make it a meaningful experience. What's your final message to leaders, managers who are calling their teams to return to the office? What can they do instead? The horse is bolted, (laughs) the genie's out of the bottle. This is one of those Kodak moments, you know, where you've got a choice. There is the old way of doing things and there's a very good chance that that will lead to the demise of many companies. There's this new human-centric thing that's happening and uh, you've got the opportunity to embrace it. But the direct advice I'd give is check your own privilege and just really think about is this what's best for your employees, your company and your customers 
or is this about you? Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Tim James and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.